They used to be called engines, but then became powertrains. Now with the growth of hybrids, electrics, and fuel cells, General Motors labels them all propulsion systems. Today we're joined by the man who determines what drives GM vehicles. In the auto industry, you need a partner that can develop the next game-changing technology and mass-produce it quickly. Borg Warner can. Our expertise drives future mobility trends with fast-to-market solutions for clean, efficient propulsion systems. We understand the challenges you face. We know what you need to get ahead. We take innovation from the drawing board to the road quickly, providing localized production around the world. Borg Warner, your partner in propulsion system solutions for a cleaner, more energy efficient world. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. We're going to be talking about what they used to call powertrains. These days, they call them propulsion systems. We're talking about piston engines, electrification, fuel cells, and a number of other varieties as well. And the reason we're doing that is my special guest for the day is Dan Nicholson. He's the vice president of Global Propulsion Systems at General Motors. And Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jen. It's a pleasure to be here. Joining us today, too, are Eric Tingwall from Car and Driver, and Sam Abilsamed, a senior research anal analyst with Navigant Research. And I want to thank the two of you for joining us as well. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us, John. Dan, I imagine you've got to have a hard job because there's so many choices that General Motors has to invest in. I, I alluded to that, the piston engine, mm -hmm. battery electric vehicles, plug-ins, fuel cells. But what I'm wondering is, it looks to me like the piston engine is a moving target. It's getting better and better all the time. And I'm just wondering, how long is the internal combustion engine going to be around for? Well, there's a lot of people, not only at General Motors, but in the industry that are really working hard every day to make uh, internal combustion engines better and better. I believe in the world, uh, electrification and internal combustion engines can peacefully coexist. And actually, consumers are better off by this competition uh, as everybody tries to make a better product uh, for the customers. So we're not, let's say, out of tricks on internal combustion engines, neither for gasoline nor for diesel. And I think you'll continue to see them getting better and better, more efficient, um, but also in competition, you know, in the marketplace with electrification, which is making huge strides as well. And when you say that internal combustion and electrification can coexist, yep. you're really talking about hybrids at that point, right? Well, I just mean in the marketplace. So I think battery electric vehicles, you know, are increasingly important for the future, especially for autonomous shared vehicles that we envision coming. Um, you know, conventional Engines and transmissions still make sense for a lot of customers in a lot of segments. And then everything in between hybrids and various levels of electrification are, are existing in the marketplace today. I wanted to jump in there. You mentioned diesel engines. You talked yeah. a lot about gas. But uh, General Motors, obviously, is making a play with the cruise diesel and yeah. coming soon the Equinox, the terrain crossover. Um, you sold about 12,000 cruise diesels in yep. the last generation. That's a pretty small number. Gas prices are remaining low. What really convinced GM that it was worthwhile to do another generation cruise diesel? 
Yeah, well, we're committed to choice for our, our customers. So we want to give cruise customers at Chevrolet a, a choice of really outstanding gasoline engines, but also a chance to get over 50 mile per gallon on the highway. So the cruise diesel is 52 mile per gallon on the highway with the manual transmission. And for some customers that drive, you know, 20,000 miles a year, that makes a lot of sense. They'll get a great payback and it is a great driving experience. This is a no apologies diesel engine that is quiet, refined, and really pleasing for some customers. So we think diesels still play um, a role in the market um, in North America. Not a huge percentage, but, um, you know, we think it can grow from 3 to 5 6%, and that uh, makes sense for some customers, and it's all about customer choice. Does the case for that cruise diesel become easier with the fact that Volkswagen, formerly the biggest player in that arena, is no longer playing? Well, certainly, um, you know, we made our plans uh, prior to uh, those events, but I think we're selling into a place where there's, um, to your point, uh, one, one less major competitor at the moment. Um, but we expect competition, and we welcome competition because we think that um, makes us look good. So uh, I think we lucked into some really good timing. And again, uh, the consumers can benefit not just the cruise, but this summer we're coming out with the Equinox. So you'll be able to get better than 40 mile per gallon uh, on the highway, which is great in an SUV segment where there really haven't been diesels before. So we're trying out new segments and more of a portfolio. So we want Chevrolet and GMC to kind of be uh, associated with as diesel friendly brands uh, for consumers. You mentioned uh, earlier, you know, the, the internal combustion and, and electrification coexisting. And I think that's that's right, you know, especially in different different market segments, uh, different applications. You know, with all, you know, we've had a lot of great advances in electrification over the last several years. Certainly, cars like the Chevrolet Bolt, you know, demonstrate what's what's possible, you know, with a relatively affordable EV. But you know, there's still a lot of segments, you know, especially here in North America. Trucks, pickup trucks, and, and full size utilities uh, for the kind of capabilities that customers want from those vehicles. Yep. Uh, you know, the reason the reasons why they buy them, electrification just isn't really a, a good, or at least full EV is not really a viable option yet. Um, but you know, things like ver- various degrees of hybridization, I think, definitely are. You know, and do you see? Um, much, I mean, GM, you know, was a leader uh, a decade ago with the two-mode hybrids on those trucks, and I think, you know, that it was maybe a, a little, a little bit too early and came came at the wrong time, maybe the wrong price point at the time. But um, do you think um, that hybridization in the next five to ten years in those segments is something that's going to play a big part? And do you see as more uh, strong hybrids like the two modes or uh, something uh, more like a 48-volt mild hybrid as being the right sort of solution in, in those kind of segments? Yeah, I think um, you'll see a lot of uh, different things in the marketplace um, as uh, manufacturers seek to find solutions that make sense for them. Um, hybridization uh, you know, will continue to be on the market. I'm not sure it's um, on a big upward trend because I think electric vehicles are kind of... Um, Uh, being more viable than they were in the past. Also, I should say that with the improvement that we've talked about in internal combustion engines, the gap between hybrids and so-called conventional internal combustion engines has actually gotten smaller. And so it makes it actually harder to justify the hybrids when the gap uh, is, is a little bit smaller. So you'll continue to see a lot of things from 48 volt to actual hybrids. Um, and it's a very dynamic marketplace. 
I mean, um, OEMs really need to be up on a lot of technologies and choose very carefully um, to make good decisions for consumers. Dan, I want to go back to a point that Eric just raised about uh, the diesels, and you said maybe get up to 6% penetration. I think you're talking on those two specific models, uh, the Cruise and the No, I meant the overall marketplace. Really? Because 6%, I mean, all green cars, including hybrids, plug-ins, and electrics, right now are, what, less than 3%. So you see diesels yeah. potentially being twice as large as that set. Yeah, let me be clear here, though. I'm talking about um, uh, passenger vehicles, also including, let's say, 2,500 and 3,500 series. Trucks. If you take, if you take uh, light duty Even plus so. 25 and 3,500, you're already at around 3% now mm-hmm. because the uh, heavy duty segments, the 25 and 3,500s, are um, you know, 80% plus diesels, and it's not a small market. Um, so I, I think we can get to five or six percent um, overall. Uh, consumers just need more choice, and they need to be educated on what the benefits are. Again, it's not for everyone, and I don't see us approaching you know Europe-like numbers of forty to fifty percent. But I think there's a lot of consumers out there that are putting a lot of miles, highway miles, on their vehicle where there would be a positive payback. And there's really no um, no downside uh, because the fuels are broadly available. Um, by the way, all Chevrolets are B20 capable, so biofuels are uh, capable with our diesels. And one of the customer benefits is less refueling stops. So diesel consumers stop at fuel stations 10 fewer times per year than uh, gasoline. And for most customers, that's kind of a pain point, not a pleasure point. So if you can do that 10 fewer times a year, that's a side benefit. I'm curious how you guys landed on the cruise, the Equinox, the train. Have you ever discussed larger segments, things like three-row crossovers for a diesel application? Why do you tend to put those in smaller vehicles? Yeah, um, well, I think we're looking at a lot of choices now, and everything's kind of on the table. I mean, um, we're trying to open up more and more segments. So um, we did go with the compact passenger vehicle because that's where we'd had an entry before, and actually we're leveraging um, great product that we already have engineered in Europe, so it's an easy thing to do. The Equinox and Terrain are nice moves into a new segment that hasn't really seen diesel before at all. But to your point, um, there are larger SUVs that can make sense, um, and um, you know we'll just continue to keep looking at those and see what our customers tell us. On the uh, gasoline side, you know, one of the big trends over the last decade has been downsizing with direct injection and, and turbocharging. Yep. And um, in Europe in particular, they've gone very aggressive on that. You find a lot of cars with very small gasoline engines, which has helped them to achieve um, the, uh, the, the CO2 requirements that they have in, in the EU. Uh, at least in the lab, but there's been you know, a big discrepancy between what cust- consumers are reporting in the real world and, and those lab results. And now with the addition of the real driving emissions uh, in Europe, we're starting to see some OEMs moving back towards a little bit larger engines, trying to get closer to, you know, trying to close that gap between real world emissions and lab emissions. Do you think that here in North America um, that we've that we're kind of at the right place in terms of engine downsizing, or do you see us going a little little smaller or maybe even kind of reversing course and upsizing a little bit, trying to right size? Yeah, just to clarify, I think most of what you've said in terms of the limits of downsizing um, 
in Europe is is applicable to diesels. I mean, gasoline's affected to some extent, but that's primarily um, a, a diesel conversation as I see it. And I think definitely um, there's a limit to downsizing on diesels with the technologies that we have today. Um, and I think we're close in Europe. And so I, you know, we have a 1.6 liter diesel in the cruise. I don't think uh, you'll see us do a one liter diesel, you know, in the next generation. I think that's a pretty good um, displacement range that we see. Um, Gasolines haven't been as affected by that, and so I think we're still on a downsizing trend in gasoline engines, and I think, I think you'll see that uh, continue. Um, but again, that's size dependent. So uh, in the U.S., customers are tending to buy larger and larger vehicles um, that have uh, you know, smaller and smaller engines displacement per segment, but as they move up segments, they're probably in the same displacement of the one they got out of. Dan, in the past you've yeah. talked about the need for the United States to have higher octane gasoline. Yes. Essentially premium would be all that we could buy or more. At the same time, the EPA and the California Air Resources Board are asking for decarbonized fuel, fuel with less carbon in it. Where do you see that standing? Do you see any movement with getting higher octane and less carbon in the gasoline and or diesel? Yeah, those two are not uh, incompatible. And so we believe on a well-to-wheel basis, if we really want to address CO2, it's super important to address the fuel as part of the system. That's irrefutable, you know, backed by 30 to 40 years of research, um, that the fuels really need to go together with the vehicles and with the engines. So, um, you know, what we're advocating is that we, it's time to take a look. It's time to do another look at what's the, the fuel for the next generation of low CO2 emitting uh, gasoline engines. And high octane really has to be part of that. So we're continuing to advocate for that. I think we're trying to do that in a socially responsible way, which really looks at a well-to-wheel analysis of CO2 minimization. And so um, we don't want to look at the fuel by itself. We don't want to look at the engine by itself. We want to look at it all as a system. When would General Motors or the industry need to have this higher octane to be able to meet emissions and fuel economy standards? Yeah, well, we need a little bit of lead time. You know, we can't uh, turn our engines around in one year, but that's why we're working hard on this. So we think this is a good play for three to four years from now. Um, and uh, with the right cooperation, uh, we think we can make that happen and, and have another win for customers. Along those lines, it's not uncommon to see manufacturers these days list a power output for specifically turbocharged engines based on premium fuel. Yep. The engine runs fine on regular unleaded. Um, to my knowledge, GM doesn't do much of that today. Uh, is that something that you guys might do in the future to kind of boost your performance while kind of protecting that regular unleaded that's important to consumers? Yeah, well, on the contrary, a little bit. First of all, um, we're deeply committed to integrity of our power ratings and want to make sure that customers are getting every horsepower that they pay for. Um, we do that through the SAE certification process, and we generally SAE certify <clears throat> all our new engines as a, a branding means to characterize to customers that they're getting what they're paying for. Um, in that, we have a number of engines in our portfolio, some are which pure unleaded. Then we have premium required meaning it's only designed to use premium fuel. And then we have a class in between which is called premium recommended. And several of our turbochargers engines fall in this goal. And if it's premium recommended, um, we recommend to customers, hey, if you want the full torque and horsepower, use premium. 
if you are feeling a little bit thrifty this week um, and you put in unleaded, it will not harm your engine. And so our power ratings on premium recommended are generally on premium fuel, even though it's okay to use regular. Back to the high octane fuels for a second. Um, do you see uh, E25 as being a potentially viable way to get higher octane fuels that are lower net carbon? Um, and then, you know, if if uh, higher octane fuels like E20, like 98 run uh, fuels became available, would you see um, GM uh, designing engines that are optimized for that for that type of fuel and that wouldn't necessarily run? You know, you, you talk, yeah. you've already got some that are premium only. Would you take the next step to design engines to or optimize engines for those higher octane fuels? Yeah, actually, we're kind of advocating a, a, a model where when we switched from leaded to unleaded, you know, the new engines were designed for the unleaded fuel. And we would want to do the same kind of thing to get uh, all the energy out of the octane uh, ratings. So definitely we're ready and prepared to redesign our engines to take full advantage of higher octane. That's why we need three or four years lead time in order to accomplish that. We think that's the best way to get the societal benefit. Because if we had better fuels tomorrow, not all the engines would really benefit from that. And it doesn't make sense to take an unleaded fuel, fuel engine today and just start burning you know, more expensive, uh, high-octane fuel. So we think it needs to be kind of a switch-over over model. We're fully prepared uh, to do that. In terms of, um, you know, how it's configured, we're trying to um, focus more on what the fuel characteristics are and not uh, and stay out of how it's made. I mean, there's lots of ways to get high-octane performance with good energy ratings, you know, BTUs, et cetera, et cetera. We want to focus on the specifications and leave it to the refiners and the oil companies to figure out how best to make that because they're innovating as well. And there's lots of ways to make a great uh, high-octane fuel, and we should do it at the cheapest, most cost-effective way for customers. Okay, let's talk about something that doesn't need gasoline yeah. whatsoever. Let's talk <clears throat> battery electrics and fuel cells. Yes. Battery electrics, because General Motors has come out with the Chevrolet Bolt EV. It's getting yep. accolades all over the, the place. And you're going into a joint venture partnership with Honda yep. to make fuel cells vehicles yep. starting around 2020. I just can't believe that a corporation like GM or even Honda or the rest of the industry can afford to do so many different powertrains, each of which requires massive investment in them. So yeah. can I ask you to look in your crystal ball long term? What do you think wins out, batteries or fuel cells? Yeah, great question. Um, first of all, let me, um, since you said the P word, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, powertrain um, and here I'm, I'm referring to the uh, ultimate authority of all definitions, Wikipedia. If you mean an engine and a transmission bolted together, that's what a powertrain is. And um, I love powertrains. Uh, I own several of them, and uh, it's kind of my hobby, and we really like to do it. Um, you know, we're talking about propulsion systems at General Motors because it really reflects the broad scope of everything that we do. And if you look at what motivates and what propels a Chevrolet Bolt, honestly, to call it a powertrain is a bit of an insult. And it's really an insult to the people that work so hard to bring it to market in the way that it is. And it's an insult to, um, you know, what it is because it doesn't have an engine. And so uh, I don't ever call 
what, what motivates the Bolt, a powertrain. Um, so having set, set aside that we're super proud of the Bolt, it's great. It's got uh, class-leading performance, and it's out there. You know, for under $30,000, a customer can have uh, 238 miles of EV range in a great driving car. So no compromises. Um, lots of magazines, including Car and Driver, have written about how great it is to drive. And so that's what we're really excited about, bringing that to market uh, and letting everyone know, you know, it's not just West Coast companies that can innovate and can do really great things, we can do that as well. Um, turning to fuel cells, we're very proud of the partnership that we have with Honda. Um, we've announced a manufacturing joint venture. We're going to manufacture fuel cells right here in the United States of America in, in, uh, in the U.S., and we're really proud about that. I think it's great, and actually that partnering enables us to cover a lot of bases because it's necessary to do a lot of things because we live in a very... Um, uh, turbulent world with lots of things changing, so we have to cover a lot of different areas, and not everyone can do everything. So um, we can do a lot of things well, we can't do everything all at once. So partnering allows us to have leverage and work where we have aligned interests and bring more products to consumers without spending all the capital, all the engineering, all by ourselves. So we like to kind of um, go Dutch treat and split the bill and uh, get it done for kind of half the cost. So that's what we really have with uh, Honda with the fuel cell. We think it's a great partnership. Um, you know, we're super proud of the ZH2, which has gotten a lot of attention at uh, various shows. That's this a, is the pickup the, truck. The Colorado the pickup cell. truck uh, runs on hydrogen. It's awesome. I drove this vehicle uh, off-road. It has great off-road capability. And what is so eerie about it, it's silent. So you're going over these big hills and over the moguls and it's, it's whisper quiet, so um, it's really, really amazing. Um, back to EVs. Yeah. Um, it seems, you know, that $30,000 price point after federal tax credit, really competitive, starting to get right down there with the average transaction price yep. for today's new car sale. Um, how close are we to reaching the point where a EV propulsion system is actually at parity with an internal combustion powertrain? Yeah. Great question. Um, we're getting closer all the time. When actually we get there, actually, we talked about it a little bit earlier. I think we're going to get there segment by segment. Okay. So, for example, we talked about uh, pickup trucks with the hauling capability, towing capability. That's actually a very tough challenge uh, to do in an EV kind of way for and meeting customer expectations. But if you start to talk about um, a CSUV, maybe that's where it's closer. So we're not going to get there all at once. Different OEMs are going to get there at different times, and we're going to get there differently segment by segment, um, and maybe a little bit country by country, because it'll also depend on the total cost of ownership for the customer. And so really, it's not just about manufacturing cost or piece cost. It's about total cost of ownership, which also relates to what are they paying for electricity? What's the charging infrastructure? Can I charge during the day for free? Can I charge at night for free? Can I get uh, a government incentive? And so we're getting closer all the time. That's why we're so focused on really being the premier manufacturer of electric vehicles, including the propulsion systems, and we're working uh, uh, really hard on uh, bringing that to c customers as soon as we possibly can. Autonomous shared vehicles is the one that is the most cl um, clear to me because of the high demand of sensors, electrical output, um, all the compute power that's necessary in an autonomous shared vehicle. I'm, I'm fully convinced those will be EVs when they come to market. 
um, like you're starting to see experiments right now. So that segment, um, which is not quite as price sensitive as other ones, will be first, will be 100% EV. That's my prediction here on AutoLine today. Um, and then other segments will, will kind of follow. And we're working really hard to um, get there as fast as we can uh, because we want to lead and not follow. What's the, the charging solution for those high utilization shared vehicles? If they're all going to be EVs, um, are these things where you imagine they will eventually return home and charge for a little bit and, and come back out and pick yeah. up customers? Or is it something that you'd like to see wireless charging to be able to do that on the fly? Almost? And then who yeah. pays for that? <laughs> yeah, those are good questions. Um, I think it's uh, certainly possible for shared autonomous vehicles to you know, return home at night and charge up because if you think about um, especially during weekdays you know the usage of taxi fleets and other kinds of things there's only so many people that are completely nocturnal and out you know driving around so I think it's totally viable to have um, you know 150 mile range of city driving with heavy loaded electrical and then you know charge between uh, 12 and 6 and and that 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 can actually be workable so I don't think wireless charging is required to make a shared autonomous infrastructure happen for cities but that depends on having a vehicle like the bolt that has that longer range you couldn't really use a shorter range EV for I I agree with I I agree with that 50 miles I think is not going to get it done and 50 miles on a regular vehicle would be shorter in a shared autonomous space because of all the heavy electrical parasitic loads that are on the vehicle. You're right that uh, autonomous cars are going to need more electrical power, but I've had others tell me that if you're going to be recharging these batteries so much more frequently because you're ride-sharing the vehicle, Mm -hmm. it's going to degrade the battery much more quickly. I had one guy say that we have to invent a new kind of battery for autonomous electric cars. Yeah, I'm not sure that's true, quite frankly. I mean, um, we think of vehicle usage in terms of, you know, miles and time. And certainly, um, if you're driving any vehicle, let's say 50,000 miles a year uh, around the clock, um, it's going to wear out faster than one that, you know, sits parked 80% of the time and only does 10,000 miles per year. So... Um, charge cycles are critically important to batteries. We absolutely know that, but we think we can meet, um, you know, the needs of an autonomous shared vehicle without, you know, with, with let's call it today's um, battery technology, but of course evolving at the pretty fast rate that it's been evolving at. We're down to the less than a minute right now. Mm-hmm. We need a quick answer. So you see the day coming where you can make money on electric cars because so far everyone loses money on them. Yeah, absolutely we do. Um, I think it'll happen first in autonomous shared. I think it'll happen in different places around the globe. Um, you know, China's really bullish right now and on electric vehicles, so that's going to be an important market. Um, Europe is doing some interesting things, especially in countries like Norway. I think it'll happen here in the United States of America with autonomous shared because there's a lot of innovation going there, and General Motors uh, intends to be a leader in that space. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up with this. Dan, thanks so much for coming on. Very interesting what you're doing with propulsion systems at General Motors. Thanks, John. Eric Tingwell and Sam Abuselman want to thank you guys, too. Thanks, John. And, of course, I want to thank all of you sitting out there having watched the show. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. In the auto industry, you need a partner that can develop the next game-changing technology and mass-produce it quickly. Borg Warner can. 
Our expertise drives future mobility trends with fast-to-market solutions for clean, efficient propulsion systems. We understand the challenges you face. We know what you need to get ahead. We take innovation from the drawing board to the road quickly, providing localized production around the world. Borg Warner, your partner in propulsion system solutions for a cleaner, more energy efficient world.